two Bibles to our passage that we'll be focusing our attention on this evening, Psalm 2. Psalm 2. We're going to consider together what this psalm teaches us about uh, the work of Christ, the rule of Christ over all the nations, the inheritance of the nations given to Christ as His heritage, um, and what motivation this gives us for the work of missions. You notice in the bulletin we'll be focusing on three things tonight, the message of Psalm 2 first, uh, secondly, the meaning of the psalm. I see it says the meeting uh, in, the, in, the, in the bulletin, but that, is, that should be the meaning of the psalm. And then finally, its motivation uh, for the work of evangelism or missions. Psalm 2. The psalmist, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Here we're going to end our reading of God's most holy word tonight. Well, brothers and sisters in the Lord, I don't mean to sound unkind, but I've learned that most people, many people at least, have the capacity for doing foolish and stupid things. I heard about a man who once sued the manufacturer that made his lawnmower because he seriously injured himself while attempting to use the lawnmower to, tr to um, trim his hedges. And he, of course, got injured. And to such a person, we might ask, what were you thinking? Why would you do that? What a foolish, stupid thing to do. I heard about another woman who sued the uh, fast food giant McDonald's, successfully, apparently after biting carelessly into the middle of her cheeseburger, only to burn her mouth on a few hot pickles. Again, we might ask, what were you thinking? Why would you do something like that? How would a foolish decision? Well, the message of Psalm 2 begins with a similar type of question, you see. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain against God? The psalmist begins with a question that indicates that he is scoffing. He is making fun, so to speak, of the futile rebellion of wicked rulers who would dare stand against the Lord and His anointed. In verses 2 and 3, the psalmist describes more of this, this foolish behavior of the Gentile rulers, the kings of the earth. 
kings of the earth, he says, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. Let's cast away their cords from us. The images of the kings of the earth coming together, banding together to try to usurp the sovereign rule of the Lord of the universe. And the psalmist asks, why would you do that? Why would you do such a foolish thing? The rebellion of the wicked Gentile nations is futile. It's destined to fail. It's utter vanity. Why? Why should the kings of the earth be afraid that their rebellion against God will come to nothing? Because there's a hearty divine chuckle that's echoing through the cosmos. Verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. The God of all heaven and earth the sovereign ruler over all, who is clothed in absolute power, ridicules the pride of the nations. And he reveals that he has set his king on Zion. Verses 5 and 6, then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, it's valuable for us to pause here in the psalm and notice that Psalm 2 is best read, it's best understood in light of God's covenant with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And you may remember that when God made His covenant with David, He promised David that He would have two wonderful things. He would have a great name and He would have a great kingdom. And all who followed in David's line of kingship would be called sons of David. They are the anointed of the Lord that the psalmist is talking about here. Those who were chosen as kings to be God's representatives over the people of Israel. And the overarching promise of God that's contained here in this psalm is this. Any king from David's line who would follow God's instructions who would obey His law, would not only be in a position to rule all the nations of the earth, but he could ask of the Lord, and the Lord would give him the nations as his inheritance. And that's why we read here in verses 7 and 9 that the psalmist takes somewhat of a back seat. He's no longer the narrative in verses, the narrator in verses 7 through 9, but it's that anointed king of David's line that speaks. And he utters the promise of the Lord, the decree of the Lord, which defines his relationship to God. And it's this, the Lord says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Once again, you notice the language reflects the language of God's covenant with David. And it reinforces the promise that God made to David and to his line, to his sons, those who would follow him as kings. The king is declared to be God's son because he represents the covenant relationship that God has with his people. As king, he represents God before the people. As king, he protects and he cares for the covenant people of Israel on God's behalf. 
As king, he leads God's people into battle to defeat all of their enemies. As God's representative to the people, the king's inheritance includes the rule and the ownership of all the nations of the earth. Look at verses 8 and 9. God says to the sons of David, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You will rule the nations of the earth if you are faithful, if you are obedient. And because this king rules over the nations of the earth, God's people would also rule the nations, indeed, the whole world. Well, finally, we see armed with this confidence, with these great promises from God to David and, and all of his sons, the psalmist comes back as the narrator and he rebukes the rulers of the earth who have stood up against the Lord in rebellion. And he says, you must serve the Lord. You must bow your knees before the Lord and before His anointed King. Look at verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The psalmist says to the, the wicked nations, you must act wisely. You must be willing to submit to God through His anointed King. Otherwise, the consequences will be disastrous. For those who refuse, the consequences are deadly. They will perish under God's wrath. But you notice in verse 12, for those who submit, great blessing and refuge await. Blessed are all who take refuge in God's anointed King. And so, if we were to summarize the message of Psalm 2 in one very brief sentence, it would be this. Because God has enthroned His King, the nations of the earth should repent of their rebellion and take refuge in the Lord's anointed. But if you know the Old Testament, you know something about the Old Testament kings, those who came in the line of David, you know that the promises of God's covenant made with David were never fulfilled by any of the Davidic kings of the Old Testament. If we read First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, the record of the rulers of Judah and Israel, we know that the history of the kings of David was a history of rebellion against God, a history of disobedience, a history of rampant idolatry and lawlessness and worldliness of all kinds, and you know the tragic results. The king's wickedness, the wickedness of the people of Israel led to the end of the monarchy. It led to the destruction of the temple, of God's visible location, His dwelling with His people. It led to exile for the people into Babylon, the land of the very nations whose gods they had come to love so much. The kings of Israel, the sons of David, failed at obeying the law of God as they were called to do. They failed to be representatives of God to the people. And yet, the promise, the hope of the promises of David were kept alive. The promises were kept alive not by Israel's obedience not by the obedience of Israel's kings, 
but by the faithful covenant love of God. God, despite His people's rebellion, would establish His reign through His appointed King. That's what we read here in verse 6. God says, as for me, I, in the Hebrew it's emphatic, I'm the one who has done it. I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. Who is that King that Psalm 2 describes? The only King of David's line that could possibly fulfill the promises made to him is David's greatest son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's anointed King who rules the world, who subdues the nations. Christ is the one who fulfills this psalm and is able to secure all of its promises for us as God's people. It was Jesus who faced the roaring, the persecution, the opposition of nations and rulers against God when He was ridiculed and spat upon by the jealous Jews, His own countrymen who rejected Him. It was Jesus who faced the opposition of nations and rulers when He was innocently condemned by Herod and Pontius Pilate by Gentile rulers. It was Jesus who was persecuted and reviled against by the nations as the early church and the apostles were persecuted for preaching the gospel. What did Jesus say to Paul on the way to Damascus? Paul, or Saul, rather. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But it was also Jesus and His church who could laugh. Jesus and His church could laugh at the futile, vain, hopeless opposition of the nations around them. Despite opposition to the gospel, Jesus established a community of faithful disciples who refused to back down from the threats and the plots against God's anointed King and His church. The early Christians could laugh like God laughs at those who would seek to thwart the power and the success of God's kingdom here on earth. The early church laughed. They rejoiced, we heard this morning. They sang at the persecution they faced. Instead of cowering in fear, they asked for boldness to continue speaking the word of God. And how did God answer their prayer? We read throughout Acts, especially in Acts 4.31, God filled them with the Holy Spirit to proclaim the Word of God with boldness. They would not back down before the the roaring opposition of the nations. And God, we see in Acts, all throughout the book, He strengthens His church against the conspiracy of evil nations, and He gives power, He gives success to the church's preaching of the Holy Gospel. We see various places in Acts. We see in verse 12 of chapter 5, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, confirming this was the church of Christ. We read it in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. As Reverend Murphy pointed out for us last Sunday evening, That is a refrain throughout all of Acts. The Word of God increased. It was successful. The church grew. 
because even in the midst of persecution, even in the midst of the raging of the nations, God was establishing His rule. He was establishing His kingdom through the proclamation of the name of His anointed King, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who even now sits at the right hand of the majesty on high, and He has inherited a name that is more excellent than the angels. In these days, the writer to the Hebrews says, God has spoken to us, and He is speaking to the nations by His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things, and He is far better than any earthly king of David. And His glory and power surpass that of the angels. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Here the writer goes through Scripture. He quotes from Psalm 2 and many other places in the Old Testament to prove that God has appointed His Son to be the heir of all things, all the nations, and He is greater than David's sons, greater than the angels. Beginning in verse 5, Hebrews chapter 1, he asks, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my Son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all of God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Who, of whom could it be said that he's the ruler, the inheritor of all the earth? Only Jesus. Only Jesus, the Son of David, the Son of God, the anointed King of the Lord. And it's to this anointed King, Psalm 2 says, our Lord Jesus Christ, it's to Him that God gives the inheritance of the nations. God expands the scope of His covenant grace and love, and He makes the nations of the earth the inheritance, the heritage of Jesus, the treasured possession of His Son. I don't want you to miss how amazing that promise is, because until Christ came, only Israel could be regarded as the treasured possession of God. Only one nation could be called the heritage of God's anointed king. That was Israel. But now in Jesus Christ, even the Gentiles, those far off, those living in rebellion against God, are given to Jesus as his anointed, as a gift to be his heritage. And if the heritage of Christ, then the heritage of the Father and the Holy Spirit. In David's day, this was a hope that could barely be seen or understood. But in the arrival of Jesus, 
this hope has become a reality. And all of us sitting here today, worshiping the Lord, are proof, proof positive that God has given to Christ the inheritance of all the nations. Certainly, as Psalm 2 tells us, Christ's royal authority will one day come in judgment, judgment upon sin, judgment upon the nations who reject Him. But here we see Christ's royal authority is exercised not first to destroy, not yet, but first to save to the uttermost all those whom the Father has given to Him. That's the glorious meaning of Psalm 2. But finally, and very briefly, what motivation does this glorious reality give us as we consider our own call to evangelize our community, to evangelize the world, the nations? What motivation does this glorious reality that Christ has received the nations as His inheritance give us? I want to just point out four very practical things. First, it should give us a sense of urgency urgency for evangelism. If Psalm 2 does anything, it certainly destroys our pop culture's view of Jesus as a, a gentle, meek, and mild teacher who never uh, sought to make any demands upon people's lives. Although it's true our Lord is gentle to us as His people, He will, Psalm 2 makes very clear, He will pour out his wrath on all who rebel against Him. To delay bowing the knee to Christ Jesus is to put oneself under the threat of His eternal judgment. Psalm 2 is very clear. But we live right now in a time of divine patience in which God is withholding His wrath upon mankind. Like a massive dam that, that holds back containing trillions of gallons of water that, if released, would, would destroy everything in its path instantaneously. So God today is holding back the torrents of His wrath so that many may be saved. But make no mistake, His patience is not eternal. God's patience for the sinner is not eternal. Gentle Jesus meek and mild, will execute His wrath at the appointed time. And that means that today is the day of salvation, tomorrow the day of judgment. And for us, that means that today, today is the day for evangelism. Today is the day for evangelism. We cannot wait for a convenient time. We must not wait to conjure up unassailable courage or the perfect words to speak to our neighbor or our loved ones who are lost. In love, but with great urgency, we must reach the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Secondly, Psalm 2 gives us comfort, comfort, in our evangelistic efforts, because the God of Psalm 2, the God of all Scripture, is the God who is in the business of turning rebels into recipients of His covenant grace and blessings. The beautiful reality described here in this psalm is that the very nations, the wicked rebels who are now reviling Christ, who, who resist His rule, 
are the very people that God is handing over to Christ as His inheritance. Isn't that that wonderful? Isn't that wonderful? The reality explained to us here is that there are none so lost who cannot be found by a God like this, a God of such grace, a God of such power. This God, our God, who has exalted His King to the highest position of authority and rule and power, has also given to Him sinners as the object of His saving grace and love. And just as no one can escape His rule, that would be futile, so no one can escape the grasp of His saving grace and love. There's not a chance. He is, as Martin Luther called Him, the hound of heaven. He will sniff out His elect, and He will save them. All those that God has ordained to be the heritage of His Son, He will most certainly draw. So He's the God who is in the business of making the spiritually blind see. He's the God who's in the business of binding up the brokenhearted, turning sinners into saints. That's, That's His work. So don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged if you don't see immediate gains, positive results. Take comfort in our God who is powerful to save the worst of sinners. Third, this passage should give us humility. We must remember and not forget that we are the ones, all of us here tonight, we are the ones who were at one time not God's people. We were the heathen nations reviling against the Lord and against His anointed. We were the ones outside of the covenant, having no hope at all. But we have been made the inheritance of Christ. And that means several things for us. It means certainly that our lives should be filled with gratitude. Our lives should be filled with thanksgiving. We should live in such a way that those around us see we are, we are filled with thanksgiving for the marvelous grace we've received in Jesus Christ. But it means something else for us. It means that there should not be any person, there should not be any group of people that are not worthy of our attention and of the gospel. If God has made all the nations of the earth the object of Christ's kingly inheritance, then who are we to exclude anyone from the gospel? Who are we to exclude anyone from the universal church? Who are we to exclude anyone from our local fellowship here at First Chino? We are called to humbly embrace all whom the Lord our God might call into His family by faith, taking no account of social status, of skin color, of language, or even one's broken past. Finally, this passage gives us confidence. gives us confidence in missions. We are sent by the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That was Jesus' message to His disciples, wasn't it, at the Great Commission, Matthew 28. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go. 
We have been sent into the world to preach the gospel by the one who even now reigns at the right hand of the Father by virtue of His resurrection and His ascension. And we read in Ephesians 1, everything is under His feet right now. Everything. And one day He's going to return to receive the nations as His full inheritance. His kingdom at that time will extend to the ends of the earth. If that's the king that we serve, what resources could we possibly lack in missions? We can have confidence in evangelism, knowing that the same power at work in Christ is ours by faith. In fact, Ephesians 2, 6 tells us that we have been seated, we have been enthroned with Christ in the heavenly places. Brothers and sisters, we are royalty in Jesus. We share in Jesus' dominion over all the peoples of the earth. We have everything that we need, all the resources at our disposal to address the nations boldly in the name of Jesus, with love, with respect, with humility to be sure, but always with confidence, never with timidity. Psalm 2 is clear. The final judgment is imminent. It's right on the horizon. But right now, right now the grace of our anointed King Jesus Christ calls out to our world and He says, come, kiss the Son, take refuge in Jesus Christ, receive life eternal. May we have the same heart as our Master so that we might echo His call whenever, wherever we can, so that the world that so desperately needs the gospel might hear it from us. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, we are immensely privileged and grateful that You have made us, those who were once far off, those who, who wickedly reviled against You and hated You and resisted Your rule, you have made us the inheritance, the heritage of Jesus. You have called us, you have brought us into your kingdom, into your covenant. We pray now, Lord, as those who are grateful, that we would respond by bringing this glorious message that God has given to Christ all the nations of the earth, that we would bring that message to the nations of the earth. Lord, give us boldness, Give us courage. Give us humility. Take away our fear. Take away our hesitancy. Replace it with a boldness and a zeal and a passion for delivering the gospel of Jesus Christ to all those who need to hear it. May we do it with our words. May we do it with our, our actions, through our lifestyle, through the decisions that we make, through the things that we engage in and those that we resist. May we be ever conscious of how we may develop the heart of Jesus Christ for the nations of the earth which have been given to Him so that wherever, whenever we are in contact with unbelievers, we might be ready to give a good answer for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Lord, we've been encouraged. We have been comforted. We have been called by Your Word to missions. Give us the strength. Give us the faith to respond to that call. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.